Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Brant Cooper, New York Times bestseller of The Lean Entrepreneur, and my new book is Disruption Proof. If you want to level up your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Brant Cooper. Brant is the New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur and CEO of Moves the Needle. With over two decades of expertise helping companies bring innovative products to market, he blends agile design thinking and lean methodologies to ignite entrepreneurial action within large organizations. Brant has a unique take on disrupting our current way of thinking in order to be closer to customers, move faster, and act bolder. He has experienced monumental milestones such as IPO, acquisition, rapid growth, and crushing failure. And he serves as a global keynote speaker, mentor to entrepreneurs, and trusted advisor to corporate executives. Guys, it's going to be such a fun conversation because as you all know, I'm in the middle of building my own startup at the moment. So I got questions on questions for Brant, and I can't wait for you guys to listen in on that. But first, really quickly... Got to plug it before we move into the conversation. Head over to guestio.com if you're somebody that likes to be interviewed on podcasts or if you're somebody that has a podcast or a YouTube channel or a blog and you need to interview more expert guests, um, you can go over to guestio.com. There's an entire marketplace full 
of quality guests that you can interview on your show, both paid and free, as well as quality shows that you can get booked on as a guest. Um, so guestio.com, hover there, create a free account and browse around, see if there's anything that you like. Brant, what's up? Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Hey, thanks, Travis. Great intro. Thanks for having me, man. Yes, sir. I appreciate I appreciate everybody who takes the time. And uh, like I said, this is a pretty timely interview for me. And uh, this is the one of the big reasons that we said yes to this one because uh, man, I'm I'm right in, I'm right in the thick of it right now, man. Uh, right. Trying to figure out this uh, this software startup that we're launching. So before we get into some of the nitty gritty, I want to build some context and uh, for for the audience around uh, where you are currently and how you got to where you are currently. So let's rewind the clock, take it all the way back to uh, how about 13 year old Brant Cooper? So set the scene for us. You know, what were your parents like? Where'd you grow up? All that good stuff. 13 year old Brant Cooper, awkward, small. <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, I was just thinking earlier today how it's kind of cool. You get to a certain age, you can look back on your life and you can sort of see a thread that connects all these different parts to your life that you weren't aware of as you were going through all of the different parts. So my dad was a, a Navy man. So we lived almost all. I think in two different states, but a bunch of different locations in each state. And those states were on opposite ends of the United States. So California is where I was born and, and raised for the first, you know, six, seven years. And then Virginia, variety of places, and then back to California for the rest. I was always kind of a long hair for whatever reason. Uh, maybe it's just my age. It was kind of a long hair type of world. And I was kind of like, I was you know, freak was kind of a term of endearment among hippies and people called me freak. <laughs> My parents were always like, God, why are those people calling you a freak? And I'm yeah. all like, no, it's all right. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, we're tight. <laughs> Don't say anything, dad. Dad. Don't say anything. So, but I was always sort of, you know, a, a little unusual, a little bit of an outcast. I think most of us that ends up that end up going out on our own are that way. But it took a long time for me to actually equate that with I don't know, entrepreneurship or, mm. or having faith, you know, sort of in your own self at being able to take care of your own economy, which is really what entrepreneurialism is about. I mean, I, so it was one of those things that nobody was teaching it to me. You know, my dad was a, a, a great man, a really, I, I, you know, love him dearly. He passed a few years ago, but, but he wasn't entrepreneurial at all. Mm. And, uh, and so I guess I didn't really have a frame and I was sort of always like, I don't know, a few years before, uh, or at least wherever I was with my career, the the rise of entrepreneurialism in, in the U.S. hadn't really happened yet. Yeah, um, it wasn't cool yet. Yeah, it wasn't cool yet. You know, there was no revenge of the nerds yet. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I took a, tra a traditional path pretty much, you know, doing well in school and all the rest and, and just running away to college. I couldn't wait to get out of, I was in San Diego, but just couldn't wait to get out of uh, home and just, you know, took, uh, I, I majored in economics and I chose economics because it had the fewest required number of units. It's because I wanted to take everything else. I minored in English. I took electrical and computer engineering, chemistry, calculus, sociology, psychology, history, just so I wanted to take a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so I was not looking for a job. I was just looking for, you know, knowledge for just expanding my brain and for partying yeah. another year. So you know, that was college. And I kind of took a path into a, you know, a consulting job. And I lasted one year and dropped out and went to write the great American novel, which was super sophomoric because I was in my 20s and didn't know anything about the world. <laughs> 
So, uh, but you know, but it, it was there again. I didn't, I wouldn't have ever called myself an entrepreneur, but I was like, I don't want to work in this nine to five anymore. So I'm just going to stop and just, and yeah. just, just stopped. I was an artiste. I was a author, even though I was writing crap. And so I don't know, I just kind of dropped out for a little while and then moved to San Francisco Bay area, kind of back, got it back into regular jobs, got married and ended up started working at startups. So I learned, I lived through the dot-com boom and bust. And that's really where I, you know, I experienced those different monumental milestones and you just learn so much, even in the successful companies, there's so much that has gone wrong inside those companies. You wonder how they actually ever made it. And of course, <laughs> one of the reasons is that in the dot-com era, you didn't have to make it to go public. <laughs> yeah, just, right. You know, you had to have some revenue, but that was about it. It was really kind of a Ponzi scheme and it's all different now. So when we get to that part, you don't get to play that game anyway, I- anymore unless you're, you know, just so connected that you can become a, you're, you know, you're sort of labeled a un- unicorn and then they sure. play that Ponzi game again, like WeWork and others. Mm. But so we just learned, we failed so much and the startups really do bounce back from failure if they're going to be successful. And, and so after the dot-com bust, there were a bunch of people that were writing about, well, why are we building startups to look like big companies when big companies don't know how to fail? And so, so a bunch of people were writing about that. I was one of them. I ended up writing the first book self-published that talked about lean startup and customer development and product market fit. And uh, there was really sort of a movement growing around there uh, led by uh, Eric Reese, of course, when he launched his book, it just skyrocketed to the top. Yeah. And that kind of launched a new career for me. I followed up with the Lean Entrepreneur, which was a deep dive on how to do that stuff. And I started teaching that to large companies and so started my own company to teach uh, large enterprises how to have that entrepreneurial spirit. And, uh, you know, that led me to my next book, Disruption Proof which is really just trying to get these leaders to understand that we live in a completely different world. We're going through this digital revolution from the industrial age to the digital age, and everything is fundamentally going to change. How we organize, manage government entities, education, nonprofits, startups, and large corporations will be structured and managed differently eventually. So if you want to survive and want to lead the way, start now, and my book shows the way how to do it. So that pretty much takes us to today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I appreciate the the 30,000 foot view there. So I want to close in, zoom in on on a couple of things. First off, can you explain to us why it's important to be a lean entrepreneur to to have that, you know, MO from the beginning? Because I'll tell you my mistake. My mistake was I picked up a copy. uh, I think it was the lean startup with Eric Reese. And I picked up a copy of that book like four years ago because someone recommended it. And I always try to make it a habit of buying books that are recommended to me immediately. And so I bought it and I was in entrepreneurship, but I never read it until I had a software startup. And then when I started reading it, I was like, man, this applies to every business in the world. (laughs) And it would have saved me a ton of headache, stress and time, which is most valuable. And then some money along the way as well. So why, why is it so important? What is it? Yeah, I, I love, Travis, that you, you, uh, you see that it applies to, to every business. There's so many people, so many entrepreneurs that just go like, oh, it'll never work for my business model. And those people just, they didn't grok it at the right level. So the word lean doesn't mean don't raise money or don't spend money. It means don't waste money. And, mm. and that is the key word is lean is 
how do I reduce the waste in producing whatever value I'm trying to do? And so if it takes you a ton of money in order to do it, then you need a ton of money, but don't waste the money. And so the moment you start concentrating on the word waste, you realize that what the lean startup is and lean entrepreneur about is what are the practices I can do in order to save time, money, inspiration, creativity, opportunity costs that I don't waste those things. And so what are the processes that I can use to learn what I need to do before I execute? So if, you, if you're facing a bunch of uncertainty, like it could be what product features I need, but it also could be, how am I going to market to this particular customer segment? Or how am I going to sell to them? There's all this uncertainty in a startup. And if you don't learn first and you just go like, well, I'm just going to go reach into my bag of tricks. So what do I got here? Oh, SEO. Cool. I'm going to go and execute and optimize SEO. And it ends up being completely wrong for your product in your market. And you will have just wasted all the time, money, energy, resources, building out this whole SEO optimization when it wasn't right. Mm. So the whole foundational principle is in order not to waste is I have to learn first. And so I go out and I develop empathy for my customers. I understand them deeply. I'm not asking them what features they want. I'm asking, I'm understanding why they're asking for what they're asking for. I'm understanding their environment, who influences their purchase decision, whether there's a technical environment that I have to uh, abide by. All sorts of things that get into marketing funnel and sales funnel and what is the core value that they need from me in order to achieve what their goals are. So I need to know their goals. And then I'm going to run a bunch of experiments and I'm going to bust through all of my assumptions. I'm going to test all of these hypotheses so that I can test in a smaller way rather than investing time and money and building something that nobody wants. Yeah. So that's the, that's the key is this whole lean startup, lean entrepreneur is testing and iterating my way to finding a growing, scalable, viable business model. Most recent stat that I heard on this, I, I, I could be off on this. So if you're listening, double check me. The most recent one that I heard was that over 50% of businesses go out of business within five years, I think. I think that's right. What percentage of those businesses do you think have adopted a model like this? In other words, the main thing that I'm asking you is as an entrepreneur, how much does adopting a lean mindset increase your chances of finding a model that works? Yeah, I, I have no idea what the stats are, but it's one of those things that, that is, is rather intuitive. So the other stats that kind of go along with the stats that you were sharing is that what are the top reasons that startups go out of business? And number one is there's no market for their product. So no matter how much you're a lean startup or a lean entrepreneur, you can iterate till the cows come home. But if you, if you don't find a market for your solution, then you're going to fail no matter what methods that you use. The key is, is that if, you, if you're using Lean Startup correctly, at least you exit from that idea with a bunch of learning. And so what, else, what can I leverage there on my next try? Mm. So you're not starting with scratch from scratch as long as you're learning. The second reason is, is premature scaling. And this usually happens because of investors. And it gets back to that Ponzi scheme comment I was talking about, is a lot of investors really are pushing founders to grow faster than they are able or understand how to um, because the investor really just kind of wants to flip their shares to the to the next sucker yeah and so oftentimes you know they pay the founders enough money that the founders get all caught up into the hype but it's really important that if you find success 
you find investors that are in there for the long haul, not the ones that just kind of want to flip their shares and get out. Private equity is is actually you know some of the worst with that respect. They want to control. They want just to show profits and they want to flip their shares. Mm. But anyway, that's another story. So no market and premature scaling. So you're using the lean methods to prove even that you don't have a market, right? So you're walking away from a market confident that you gave it your best shot as opposed yeah. to this thing hanging on the back of your head like, oh, I should have tried X, I should have tried Y. But if you're successfully pivoting, which means I've learned something and now I'm going to change other parts of my business model, you've got a greater shot, right? I mean, if you think about like human beings are born learning machines. This is our natural way of building. Yeah, We ne really never get something right the first time. We always fail and then we learn and then we try again, right? When we're kids, we're told all the time, first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Yeah. So by the time you're done in high school, it's like, what? You don't know the answer? You're failing to execute. Yeah. We gotta beat it out of kids, <laughs> even though it's our natural way of building. So we're really trying to get back to that. Yeah. We keep trying, but we do it in this process-oriented way using the scientific method in order to see if we can actually jig different parts of our business model to find something that works. Right. How do you know what to test next? You know, in, in, a, in a business, there's got to be so many different guesses that you're taking, different, different, different shots at the dartboard, right? How, yeah. how do you know how do, if stuff's not working, right? If you if you haven't found product market fit, if you, if it just hasn't clicked yet, how do you know what to start? tweaking or testing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's really no rule. The, the, I guess the best practices would be that you continue to document all of your hypotheses. Like here's all the things that have to be true for this business to work, and then you prioritize them. And the way we t teach people to prioritize those assumptions is what is the most unknown and what is the most fundamental assumption? In other words, other assumptions would be dependent upon that one being true. And so you can, you know, rank these on a two by two. This is all in the Lean Entrepreneur, but uh, David Bland actually has a new book out on generating experiments and it's super popular. So you might want to check that out. And you got a two by two there that you can, you map your assumptions on this two by two where it's the most unknown is over on the right and known, like I know this to be true. So you're, you're, dot, you're brainstorming all your assumptions. You're not self-editing. Just write down as many on, you know, one per post-it note as possible. And then you map to this two by two, unknown. I do not know the answer to this. I don't know what the market answer is to this question. So that goes to the far right. And then what is the most crucial? What is the most fundamental to the business? And those go up and the lower uh, important ones go below. And so then you've got this upper right quadrant that's got your riskiest assumptions. And they're so risky up there that if they end up not being true, you will have to change something fundamental about your business. And so that's really what you want to do. Because the moment that you figured out that that assumption is true, what you find is a bunch of other stuff then becomes known. And now you know all of this stuff. And when you know, you're ready to execute. And so you're giving that the known stuff to people that are intelligent enough that they can you know, execute on the blueprint that's already been proven. And you're still over there trying to figure out what's the next bottleneck that you need to break through to achieve the next level of growth. How much data do you think is required in order to be able to make an intelligent decision about whether something is working or whether it's not working? Yeah, you know, there's no, again, there's really no science to it. People want to rely on uh, statistical significance, but that's not the point because statistical significance means that you've got a random 
audience and you're putting a bell curve on top of this random audience. But when you're choosing a market segment, and the way I define a market segment is people who share the same pain or problem and speak the same language. So it's, it's really more akin to the name of this podcast. It's like, what is my network? Who, who are, who's my community is a great way to think of a market segment. And so you're trying to find a bunch of people that are in that only in that network, only in that community. And so that's no longer a random audience. Yeah. And so really you should be seeing numbers like, well, 50% of them feel this way, right? Because they all should have the same need or, or passion or desire or aspiration. And so really the way we counsel it is you're talking to enough people until you start seeing a pattern. And so if you talk to 10, 11, 20 people in this like, wow, this is like, I'm, we're hearing the same thing over and over again. That's a pretty good signal. Hmm. Now, if you need to convince people using bigger numbers, that's when you can go use a survey tool because the survey tool lets you take everything that you've learned by doing this empathy development and experiments in person. Now I've learned a bunch and now I can form a survey around what I've learned and send it out to a bunch more people and see if that, if those numbers correlate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so the survey has already been lean startup yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, I, yeah. I've built a tool that specifically tries to help people do that. It's called heat check, but it's like, boy, it's not even quite MVP stage, but if people want it, they can reach out and I can get them all set up for free. I want it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Let's <laughs> talk about it. But uh, the idea really is, is that the first step is to identify, do I understand who my market segment is? And do I understand what the value proposition I ought to offer them? And then what do I understand? What are the top, I don't know, three areas of functionality I should build that's going to drive value to that particular market segment? Everybody wants to go big, right? But you got to start small. I got narrow and focus. Who can I create value for? This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
how do you know when you're ready to go raise capital? So there's a couple of different scenarios I like to think about. Number one is capital for intellectual property is different than raising money for most of us. So back in the day, everybody sought patents. Everybody was looking to protect their intellectual property. A vast majority of startups and small businesses do not have patentable technology and they don't need it. They actually have to move fast is more important than, you know, get, go getting a patent filing. But people in health science, you know, pharma, uh, life science, um, AI algorithms, robots, you know, a lot of hardware, there's, there's definitely plays that still require an IP strategy. But if you're just software, most likely you don't need IP. And so then you should be raising money when you've already proven you know how to scale the business. And then the financial markets are for providing the scale money. And so really, I don't want to take money until I know how I'm going to turn their you know, $10 into $100. Mm. And the, if the what, longer I wait in that regards, the, the more of the company I get to keep and the more I can create a market for my company, which is sort of a, a lost art, I think, uh, in fundraising. Um, also, I do encourage people to go look at alternative forms of funding now so that you don't get caught in the trap of uh, investors wanting you to scale prematurely. Hmm. And so there, there's revenue-based financing where returns are, are based on dividends or even interest rather yeah. than equity. And you can always go to the equity route later, but the equity requires you know, valuation growth. It requires equity growth, and that's mm. a lot higher. And so if your business ends up being a, you know, a lifestyle business, which I don't think is a pejorative at all, it's very difficult to grow a business and keep it running no matter what size it is. And so yeah. people should be encouraged to do that. That's the backbone of the U.S. economy, in my opinion, or at least it was pre-pandemic. And so if you go and get equity and then your, your company turns into a lifestyle business, in other words, it's not going to scale up to be a unicorn, oftentimes the investors will shut that money down so they can sell the assets to get their money back. And that's mm. unfair. Sure. Um, and so you just it's really important that founders these days, now that they do have alternatives to funding, that they make sure that they're Funding their company that's also based upon what their desired outcome is and their values and, and those type of things. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people raise money because they think that's almost the end goal. Right. You know, yeah. There's been a lot of culture that's pointed to the fact that raising capital, that's the success point. Right. And it's like, well, no, 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 that's step one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've completed step one. Congratulations. Now you have a bunch of other people's money. And you better not mess it up now. Now you have to actually go do something with the money. And if you're unclear on even why you're raising capital, you're just doing it because that's what you think you're supposed to do. Because that's what you know they do on Shark Tank. Right. Then, uh, then you might just be sitting there with a bunch of other people's money and uh, rot because nothing's happening and you have no idea what to do with that money. Yeah, I agree with you. It's 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 definitely you know kind of hip to raise money, but I think it's actually better now. I think with startup ecosystems popping up all over the world, you know, that everybody does not have to move to Silicon Valley. Mm, I mean, think yeah. about it. When everybody was moving to Silicon Valley, all of the venture capitalists there could pick and choose, right? right. They were just the, you know. They were the people that decided your fate. That's right. And they yeah. had limited supply of money and unlimited demand for it. And so the market was pretty good for them. Yeah, right. And now that we've got these ecosystems that are all over, literally all over the world, um, then that actually should give power back to the founders. They just have to know that they've got the power. Yeah. How do you know when you have the power? Well, you just have it, right? You just like you take it. And so it's difficult if you have no money and you have to spend some money. But that's actually why I start, I, I talk about list, looking at 
you know, back in the day, friends and family was considered dumb money. Today, friends and family considers, you know, is considered a smart move because you really don't want to raise institutional money until you've actually proven that you've got a business model, a scalable business model. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you start looking at the alternative sources of funding and they're getting better, finally, then put off that institutional raise until or find angels that will work with you. There are a lot of angel groups and individual angel investors that I would not put into the same bucket as traditional venture capital. So there's, you just, you got to own it. You got to own it. You got to be in charge, your CEO. So own what it is that you want out of it and create a market for your raise. Founders are, are sort of, I guess, expected to be raising, you know, 12 months out of the year now. But that again, that actually gives power to the venture capitalist because the venture capitalist can sit there and, and drag it out. Right. So back in the day, what, you know, what the founders would do is they would go, they would choose a window, a month window, and they would take, you know, a couple of weeks and tour all the venture capitalists on Sandhill. And so their goal was to get one term sheet. And the moment they got one, they shot that term sheet to everybody else until, until they, you know, so it was the founders, the companies that were in control. And so now by not having that discrete amount of time and, and playing people off each other, the venture capitalists actually grab that power back. But that's mm. founders just got to get grab it back. Yeah. Yeah. Just get tougher about the terms that you're willing to accept. And yeah, I guess just more the terms of the deal rather than r- well, like it, rather it, than being scarce about that you might not get money from somebody else because, right. you know, like, oh, I don't like these terms, but it's money. So we're going to take it, you know, and you just sold that's your soul. Right. And they've only talked to one. They haven't talked like, so the first, the first rule should be go lay the groundwork. So way before you need money is talk to every venture capitalist that you think, or an angel investor that you think would be interested in your market and literally say, listen, I can buy you a cup of coffee. I'm not raising right now, but you're an expert in this field. I'd love to just pick your brain. And I'll tell you a little bit about my company if you're interested. So you're not there to pitch. You're actually form a relationship. And then when you're ready to raise, you create the raise as a market, just as if you were doing a product launch. So you're choosing discrete amount of time. We're going to raise between these three months. Mm. And then here are all of the people that I'm going to, I'm going to hire somebody to, to line up the meetings within the, you know, these weeks. And I'm going to travel to those places and I'm going to do my, you know, it's a roadshow. Yeah. And that's it. And that's it. Right. If you don't raise during that period, you find another way to survive and you should understand by that point what you need to achieve in order to raise. Mm, got it, got it. So, so all of the venture capitalists know this game because when they do an IPO, they team up with the investment bankers and they do the exact same thing for the IPO, right? Yeah, There's a specific yeah. day that they know that the, the stock is gonna go public. And so they can sit there and ramp up, okay, here's what we need to do between now and IPO. And they go on a roadshow and they invite out all of the analysts and anybody that's got money and all of the institutions that, that you know, the, the uh, pensions and in, mutual funds, anybody that's going to be in there, they go on a, a literally a roadshow to get to try to convince those people to buy on IPO day. So how much of all of this is relationships, Brant? How much of it is our network? Today, network is king. Network is more than anything else, right? I mean, it's whenever we're trying to sell a product or a service, we're trying to change people's behavior. And I Mm -hmm. think that you can even flip that anytime you're trying to raise money, you're actually also trying to change people's behavior. So they're doing something now and you want them to do something differently. Yeah, yeah. And so you can either do that as a stranger (laughs) or you could do that as somebody that's familiar that you don't know, or you could do that because somebody is actually in your community. Yeah, 
and you have some I mean, trust. Maybe even that. network and community might even be a subset of network. I don't know if you if you've thought about all of that, but but uh, it's everything. I mean, it's how do you cut through all of the noise? There's so much noise out there. Why is somebody going to listen to your noise from somebody I don't know anything about versus the noise that's coming from my own network? Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I gotta I gotta ask this question, Brent, because it's one that I've, we've asked every single guest. Uh, that's ever come on the show. So curious to hear your answer. Who you know or what you know, Brant? Which of those <laughs> two is the most valuable asset in life and why? I saw that question and I was all like, damn. Because <laughs> you know the answer is both. I get the answer all the time. Yeah, I know it's both, but I make people choose. I know. So. If you're going to give a slight, if you're, it's going to be 51-49 instead of 50-50, which one are you giving the slight edge to? Well, so so what I'm going to say is, what I'm going to say is that it's a sequence and you have to, you have it's what you know that will allow you to get to who you know. So mm. what you know gets you to who you know and who you know gets you to success. Mm. Got it. So they're both super important, but the the who is what's going to ultimately open the door. Who's <laughs> who's going to get you the money? But you're not going to get you're not going to get the who until you have the what. Yeah. So if you go in there and you pretend that you have the what, but you don't really, right. then all of the relationships that you have with the who are not authentic. Sure. And yeah. so they're they're actually only either having a relationship with you because it helps them or it's because they've been duped and the moment they find out the truth, they're going to dump you like a hot potato. Yeah, right. So what gets you who, who gets you the gold? Where you want to go. Yeah, yep. sure. And that, that's- So that's did I what, cheat or are you buying that? <laughs> no, I, I'll, I'll take it because you know what? I, I, think that, I think that what you're saying is who gets the 51% because here, and hear me out on this because here's okay. what I think on that. I think that now that we're in an age where knowledge is at our literally at our fingertips and we don't even have to type it out anymore. We can just ask Siri or Alexa or Google to do stuff for us and find information for us. That's why I still think who you know is the more valuable asset in our lives because that to me is the scarcity point. Knowledge is in abundance. And if you like what we're just talking about, you know, building a lean uh, a company and being a lean entrepreneur, if I want to learn about that, I can go buy your book right now and get educated on a lot of those things. And I can walk away with some of the what. But at the end of the day, I'm going to need the opportunity. I'm going to need the who at some point along the way. And I think that the who is le in less abundance than the yeah, I, what is at this point. I like the supply and demand angle of that, but let me play devil's advocate. The thing Please. is, is that if we're talking about entrepreneurs anyway, then the what, the, the abundance of the what is, it doesn't actually get you anything because what you actually need is you need a what that nobody else has. So like I tell people all the time that your competitive advantage, like we were talking about earlier, competitive advantage is no longer your IP portfolio. Competitive advantage is understanding something about your customer that nobody else does. Hmm. And so that actually, again, that is like rare. But if you learn that, then that's a nugget. And so now you've got the what. And then if you go find the who, you've got a, you've got a nugget that they want to buy into. Got it. <laughs> yeah, it, it goes back and forth for days. It does, man. It man. goes back and forth for days. Well, that's it, why it it's is, a great it's a question yang, because you know? it, it doesn't really matter in the end who votes on what. It's the discussion that gets. So that's a great question. That's exactly right. Yes, sir. And that's, that's why we ask. I love getting those answers. And uh, maybe uh, that's something that I keep thinking about writing a book about it because we've had 
almost 600 episodes on the show and we've asked all the guests who've ever come on that same question and had some interesting discussions around it. So um, nice. I think that'll, that'll be a cool, cool resource to put out in the future. Totally. Uh, but, uh, Brant, I appreciate you for coming on the show, man. Um, I want to move into the last segment here. So I'm like to call the random round, just some quick random questions, quick random answers. You ready? All righty. What profession other than your own, do you think that it would just be fun to attempt? Yeah, I could cheat and say a fiction writer. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, a little bit of a cheat. Yeah. I can see how that's a cheat. But, uh, you know, my history there is not great. A video travel blogger. So I, yeah, I'll just ri- wear a GoPro on my head and walk around traveling all over the world. There you go. I don't know. Is that an occupation? That, that's uh, definitely and, an occupation uh, nowadays. And, and maybe with a guitar on my back. So it's sort of a, we'll throw in a, what is the word for those old school traveling dudes that would play a song, but also drop some serious wisdom? That would be me, man. That's an, I don't know if that's yeah, an just, occupation. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely an occupation if you put it on YouTube. It's all the there sudden you go. occupation. Exactly right. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and chat for an hour, who would it be? Wow, great question. Man, again, there would be so many. You know, there's two names that come to mind. One is Thomas Edison. Hmm. And I love that one because there's so much mythology about what he did to succeed. You know, the whole inventing a light bulb thing is kind of bullshit. It's a great story. But really what he did is created the market for the light bulb. And so that's such a distinction Mm. um, that actually dovetails so much with the the stuff we were talking about earlier, Lean Startup. Uh, And the second name that came to mind is going to be super surprising, but it's Frederick Douglass. And the reason is, is because I am a disruptor. I want to be a disruptor. I want people to change their minds. I want people to change their behavior. And for some reason, what came to my mind is uh, somebody, you know, with sort of his guts and intelligence to do what he did when he did it. That's like sort of the ultimate change agent right there. Yeah. And um, disruptor. Yeah. A disruptor. So yeah, that was kind of, I had no idea I was going to come up with that one. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? I do audiobooks. I do Kindle once in a while, but only if I have to. I've been doing more YouTube and really kind of searching for stuff there. But probably number one has been uh, audiobooks, but actually not over the last year because that was when I had to drive. <laughs> and when I don't drive, I don't listen. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what, or give us a glimpse of your morning routine. You know, I am not great with uh, morning routines and I, and I sort of have a new one. So like sort of the bombshell is, is that I got diagnosed with esophagus cancer. And so I like just today went for my very first uh, chemo treatment. And matter of fact, here in five minutes, I'm going to leave to go do my first uh, radiation treatment. So my whole routine has been turned on its head. I can't Uh, imagine. Yeah, completely random, crazy. But you know, it's all good. I'm positive. I've got the right mindset, and uh, and we'll see. Maybe uh, maybe there's a routine that emerges from this that uh, that I benefit from long term. What is your go-to pump-up song? Probably a live version of "Eyes of the World" by Grateful Dead with a, a super long uh, Jerry Garcia jam. What is something that you are not? very good at? Um, the easier thing would be is what is I'm good at? There's only one thing, I think. Um, <laughs> what am I not good at? You know, I, I think that uh, 
You know what? What's crazy is I'm on the wrong podcast, but I actually, for the longest time, I think I'm getting better at it, but for the longest time, I was really, really weak at maintaining my network, maintaining mm. my relationships. And so I've kind of bounced around different places where I've lived and jobs that are really sort of disparate industries. And oh my gosh, if I had maintained those relationships, you know, everything is about a platform now and a platform is built upon your network. Right. And so that's like, I, I'm better now and I'm actively trying to do it, but I'm sort of an introvert. So it never came naturally to me. So maybe this is exactly the right thing to say on your podcast. People, maintain your relationships. <laughs> Perfect. Couldn't have planned that any better. <laughs> Couldn't yeah. have planned that any better. As we get everything wrapped up here, Brent, uh, remind us the name of your new book and where we can go find a copy of that online. Yeah. So the name of the book is Disruption Proof. So it's a book about, you know, how we empower our people to create value for customers and drive change in the world, drive change that you want to see. Uh, more information is at brantcooper.com. And of course, I'm Brant Cooper everywhere on social media. So hit me up on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, email is brant at brantcooper.com. And I respond to all emails. Uh, but certainly you can learn about the book there. And I've got some great bundles if people want to pre-order. And so, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to hear from your audience, Travis. BrantCooper.com. Go over there, check out some of the stuff that Brant has going on. Again, I promise you guys, you will not be disappointed. And as you all know, like I said earlier, whenever we recommend a book here on the show, get it now, okay? Don't let it, the only thing in your life that should be an unlimited budget without thinking is books. So anytime we recommend a book here, just pull out your phone, make it a habit, grab the next copy, um, add it to the queue. And I know that you will not regret that. Uh, Brant, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I had a really fun conversation with you. Yeah, that was great, Travis. I had a great time. Thank you so much, man. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. We